The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 15th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. You know I don't like to bore you with details of how I got to work. Interesting commute today, though. Uh, I was on the west side. Get on at the Museum of Natural History stop on 81st. Take the B down to Columbus. One stop, hop on the A. Then I walk across to Times Square, where I take the N. They have that underground passage between Times Square and Port Authority. I take the N all the way to Brooklyn to the 4th Avenue 9th Street stop where I jump on the G. Now, there was no real point for me doing this to take this circuitous route, but because I did, I can now say I took the... Now, the real reason I did that, to play that Jesse J, Nicki Minaj song, Nicki rapping there, was to burnish my credentials as a cool guy on the cutting edge who listens to songs like Bang Bang. Because what I'm going to do now is undercut that. It really didn't work, I know. But uh, listen to this. This is a newspaper. This is not just a newspaper, which is old manny enough. This is the insert in the New York Times that, like, some other government buys to try to trick you a little bit that it might be the New York Times. I mean, you know, they say it really up top that this special advertising feature is sponsored and produced by Rosiskaya Gazeta and did not involve the reporting or editing staff of the New York Times. But um, it's a very old man thing to read these newspapers and to wonder, wait a minute, why is the New York Times reporting on Putin? But I was incensed. I was incensed because I was grabbed by the headline, Purpose of Sanctions Unclear to Many Russians. Now listen, there are other headlines here. Russian-owned restaurant gets Michelin star. Will U.S.-Russia space cooperation survive? I see the propaganda slash PR effort going on there. But Purpose of Sanctions Unclear to Many Russians, and the whole story is just saying that. Like, why why are there sanctions on us? Now I got to tell you a little bit about Rosiskaya Gazeta. It is the propaganda arm of the Russian government, all right? It's not even like RT Today, which is a generation removed. At least I have to translate it mostly into English. This is from Wikipedia. Rosiskaya Gazeta is a Russian government daily newspaper of record, which publishes the official decrees, statements, and documents of state bodies and includes the promulgation of newly improved laws, decrees, government orders. So... These are the people whose job it is to inform the Russians of what the Russian government wants them informed about. So if Rosiskaya is telling us that the purpose of sanctions is unclear to many Russians, whose fault is that? It's Rosiskaya Gazeta. And if you are unclear Russians about why there are sanctions on you, what part of you shot an airplane out of the sky don't you understand? I will answer that rhetorical question. The you. Russians do not believe that the Ukrainian separatists were armed by Russia, and they further do not believe that that missile that downed Malaysia Air Flight 17 came from those separatists. And this was all based on misreporting by outlets like Rosiskaya Gazeta. There's another one in here. What is democracy? Russians don't know. Guess why not? It's because of the special advertising advert in the New York Times. Bang, bang, indeed. On the show today, in the spiel, I get still more upset about international institutions, some national ones too. Maria Konnikova comes by to glug some water with us and to contemplate the bullshitness of said water and the drinkage thereof. But first, the Catholics are a meeting, and I'm just fascinated by it. Its official name is the Extraordinary Synod of Bishops. It's taking place in Rome right now. There are meetings through the 19th. 
Pope Francis and bishops are reformulating Catholic policy in terms of hot-button issues like divorced people and gay people and the family. Technically, the synod will last a year through 2015 when the Ordinary Synod of Bishops meets. Joining me now is Joshua McElwee, who writes for the National Catholic Reporter. Hello. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Before we even begin on the details, define what kind of meeting is this? How often does it happen? What sorts of uh, policies have resulted from this in the past? Yeah, so it's a synod, which is a global meeting of Catholic bishops at the Vatican. There's a normal schedule for those, but Pope Francis called an, uh, an extraordinary one, an out-of-the-normal-schedule out of one for 2014, because he wanted to focus on the question of families, what, what's going on with families around the world. So he actually called two separate synods, one for this year and one for next year, 2015, on the same subject. And so they've been meeting here in Rome uh, for, I guess, a week and a half now, yeah. and they just issued a summary statement saying what they've been doing in that first week of their meeting. What have been the headlines? The statement seems to take a decidedly different tone than church documents in recent years. So where the church might have said in the past, taken a very judgmental tone, saying, uh, you know, if you're not following church teaching strictly to the letter, you know, there's a problem and you're kind of out of line. But what this document seems to say, it's, it's much more about accompanying people in their daily lives, showing mercy, and maybe leading them gradually to what the church teaches, but not, not at the front saying, well, you're wrong. I'm fascinated by Pope Francis. And when he was uh, selected to be Pope, you know, a lot of the narrative was things like talking about how he opposed gay marriage. I, I said, that's church doctrine. What do you expect? There were reports about his own beliefs and how humble a person he was and how he um, really lived a humble, almost poor life uh, using public transport and living in a small apartment there in Argentina. But I've been just fascinated and really surprised with how, for lack of a better word, progressive his agenda has been. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions. One, did we maybe people who look at the church casually, people who look at it expertly like you do, did we misinterpret how inherently conservative the church was? Well, it's tough with the, the progressive and conservative labels in the church because it's, 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 not, it's not kind of on the same spectrum as U.S. politics. But for sure, Pope Francis is someone who wants discussion, wants dialogue, and wants everything to be on the table. When he spoke to the bishops, he told them to speak frankly and boldly. And that is something that is new. The Synod of Bishops, this meeting that's happened before, normally it's kind of expected the bishops come to Rome, they read a prepared statement that's pretty dry, probably boring, and there's not real issues. There's not about, about real day things going on today. Pope Francis has devised this system in a new way, saying, no, 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 we're going to talk about the real thing and nothing is off the table. Now, granted, progressive, conservative, it does not comport to U.S. politics, for instance, but underlying a lot of his beliefs and what he's doing is not just effective leadership, amazingly effective leadership, like a guy who's taking over a sclerotic old company and breathing life into it and challenging the middle managers. In some ways, this is what bishops are, the middle managers to get their act together. But, you know, he is endorsing more forgiveness for sinners, for instance. He is endorsing policies that, you know, would have been seen as butting up against the kind of strictest interpretations of church doctrine, isn't he? Well, I think Pope Francis is coming out of, a, of an entirely different mindset and place of the world than the popes we've had in 
in centuries. He's the first Latin American pontiff coming from Argentina. And in the 1980s and 90s, the bishops in Latin America, they have a group, uh, uh, the bishops across Latin America, and they, they were meeting together and hashing out what was going on in that complex region of the world, economically, with poverty, and in all sorts of areas. And they were doing exactly what this synod is doing now. They were discussing these in open, in public, and asking people what they need and what's going on. I mean, if you want to use progressive, that's a very progressive notion for the church today. Do the powerful voices within the church hierarchy, are they eager to go where he is leading them, or is he likely to get opposition? Talk about the constituencies within the church. Yeah, yeah. Well, today the Vatican hosted a press conference. They've been hosting these daily press conferences during the synod, and that's because the, the, for some reason they've decided that the texts of the bishop's remarks are not being made public. So instead they're having these daily press conferences giving, you know, the general overview of what's going on. And one cardinal who came today is uh, from South Africa, Wilfred Napier, and he expressed some real concern with the document released Monday, saying that it might even uh, put the, the Synod of Bishops in a, in a corner. He said it would put them in a position that is irredeemable. Um, he said that it might not represent the, the full view of uh, the bishops who were there and maybe just the point of view of some of the bishops. But at the same time, he's among a small minority at this point who are making those criticisms public. It probably will take us a, a few days to see who speaks out, who says what's going on, and who kind of registers their disappointment. And at that point, we'll know pretty well if there's been some back and forth uh, among the bishops. Is Pope Francis a good politician? <laughs> I think definitely he is a savvy, uh, savvy person. He seems to know very well how to get the world attention, um, and he seems to be doing that in very simple ways. And he must know that having people's attention and having support of a lot of people uh, doesn't hurt uh, when he wants to get things done. And finally, your readers, a report for the National Catholic Reporter, the nation in question is the United States. What's been the reaction of your readers to the news coming out of the Synod, maybe even to Pope Francis in general? Well, I think our readers, just like many Catholics, are really excited by the Pope, uh, particularly his focus on kind of the core beliefs of what it means to be Catholic, not so much about a specific doctrine or a specific teaching, but in helping each other and looking at each other as people of God and in acknowledging, you know, worth of everybody. Joshua McElwee is NCR, National Catholic Reporter, Vatican Correspondent. Thanks so much. Thank you. So I was on the website beautyblitz.com, slogan, you're a click away from gorgeous, but I'm already on the site, so what are they saying? Anyway, we asked models, what's your beauty secret? So that's the, there's the premise. We asked models, what's your beauty secret? Let's see what models said. Caitlin Lyon, honestly, I drink a ton of water. Shuey P. Quinn, I just drink a lot of water to keep my skin fresh. Tony Garn, I love Bioderma Cream Line. It's this remover that's really water-based, and I drink a lot of water. That's not just true for models. It's true for everyone. Drink a lot of water. It's really healthy. The magic number, eight cups a day. So I'm just wondering, is this bullshit? I mean, models are saying it, and they are pretty. Maria Konnikova is here. She covers science for The New Yorker. She's well hydrated during this interview. Let's you and I, Maria. Cheers. I hope it goes well. We both have, these are uh, 16 pint glasses of water, mm -hmm. crushed ice. 
which will actually be two of our recommended daily servings. Since really? it's eight glasses of eight ounces. So we have 16 ounces right here. So we're getting two down. Yeah. Okay. So if we gulp these, we're a quarter of our way home. But is there a good scientific basis for this eight glass a day recommendation? Absolutely not, Mike. What? This is something that's been going around even before the internet, mm -hmm. that drink eight glasses, eight ounces every day. And the real science behind that recommendation is that it's easy for us to remember. Mm -hmm. We can't be bothered to remember something more complicated. And that's kind of a good guideline for you should drink a lot of water, probably more than you want to. Yeah. But when it comes right down to it, we still don't really have an adequate way of measuring hydration. There's a great way of measuring dehydration, so I will know if you haven't had enough water. But there are lots of different ways of getting proxies for hydration, but there's not a single one that works across the board with the general population. And so we simply don't have the data to say, well, how much water is sufficient? We don't know. So how do they measure this? Or, you know, have they done studies that try to compare the one glass of water a day drinker versus the eight glass of water a drinker in some rubrics? Well, the only way they can really do that is by basically looking at the levels of dehydration in people and comparing that to people who've been drinking water. So you'll have, for instance, two athletes on a treadmill and you'll make one of them drink water and the other one won't be able to drink water for that half an hour. And then you measure their performance. You measure you know, how well they've done on the treadmill. You measure how well they do on cognitive tests after. And you basically see you know, what's going on. Is there a big difference? And what we find is, frankly, there really isn't. Because some studies show, yes, there is. Other studies show, no, there isn't. And it's never really big. I think the biggest effects I've seen in the literature are something around 2.4%. Um, so it's actually of a difference in performance, right. which is actually quite low. Yeah. And so and so we're just talking about drinking water in order to perform an athletic feat. Or perform cognitively. So there are studies that try to compare how good water is for you. Yeah. There's only one thing that we know for sure, and that's being dehydrated is really, really bad for you. But the way to cure dehydration is not eight ounces. It's just enough water. A it's little, just pretty enough little, water. And pretty small amount, actually. Yeah. And what we actually know is that adults are pretty good at regulating their water intake. Your body tells you when it's thirsty. And when your body tells you it's thirsty, you should drink. And you should drink a lot of water. And it's easy to fool your body because even if you just put water in that glass and mm -hmm. don't swallow, spit it back out, don't actually do that. Please. Okay, sure. But if you did it, your body would think you drank it because the receptors on our tongue signal before we even swallow the water that, hey, I'm about to get hydration. It's about to go into my blood. I'm about to get this wonderful thing, which is why some athletes, you know, they, they will actually just rinse their mouth, but then spit the water out yeah. so that they don't gain water weight if they're about to weigh in, for instance, if you're a boxer or something like that. I think maybe the one reason why models drink so much water and say it's good is because it is filling and, you know, models can't eat or anything. So, yes. so that's got to be going on. Yeah, it definitely is filling, but it doesn't help you lose weight. That's another big misconception about water, that drinking a lot of water helps you lose weight. Yeah. That's only true if you're replacing water with the fruit juice that you drank before or the Coke that you drank before. By the way, all of those are liquids. So when we say you need X amount of liquid a day, it doesn't have to be water. A lot of our water comes from fruit, comes yeah. from vegetables. Right. It comes from things that aren't actually 
water. What would be the thinking behind the, you know, water helps your skin? Or is this one of those very simple thinkings like, hey, my skin is greasy, so you shouldn't eat greasy food, which has been pretty much disproved. Hey, my skin is dry, therefore I should drink water. <laughs> well, we know that hydration is good for the skin. Sure. And the skin is your barrier against you know, the outside world. And it also keeps you hydrated because it keeps the water in unless you're sweating, which is when it lets <laughs> the water out. And so I think people think you drink more water, your skin becomes more hydrated, it becomes tauter, it becomes is that true? rosier. No, no, it's not actually true. <laughs> um, we do know that not once again, not drinking water is really bad for the skin, because right. then your skin starts getting dry. But what's much more important than drinking water is being in a good climate, keeping your skin moisturized from the outside. Most dry skin isn't a result of not drinking enough water. And by the way, no matter how much water you drink, you're still going to get wrinkles. Those have nothing to do with hydration. That's sun and environmental exposure. Maybe it's one of those things where people who are in good shape say, I drink water. You'll never hear anyone say, hey, how'd you get in good shape? I got to tell you, drinking a lot of water was not part of it. Like no one will stop <laughs> to make that claim. And like, it's probably true that people who, the same kind of person who thinks I got to drink eight glasses mm -hmm. and does it even if they don't want to do it is the same kind of person who will make sacrifices based on food choice that, that is smart, will make sacrifices based on exercise that is smart. So it's seems to, this myth about water seems to correlate to true opinions about healthy living. Absolutely. Now, and that's not to say that n there should be no regulation, because while I said that all adults are pretty good at regulating them, mm -hmm. that's not always true. When you're really young or really old, your ability to regulate your own thirst goes way, way down. So little kids don't really know how to read their body signs, so they'll often be out in the sun playing or yes. doing whatever, and they won't drink enough because they won't they don't understand that they need to. They they can't read their body cues. So kids, you need to forcefully hydrate them. There's a really great Israeli approach because it's so hot there. They um, because they're really <laughs> rude people. <laughs> they um, they give their kids all the time um, salty nuts and salty snacks to eat because then they get thirsty and they drink enough water. Yes. So it's a way of tricking them. Now, as you Let me get... we say that and say, and because they're not beholden to some of the niceties of American parenting. <laughs> Um, so they give them salty nuts, yes. And then the kids will want to drink. Exactly. Huh. And then older adults, we we don't really know why, but our ability to regulate thirst declines with age. And that might be part of the explanation for why older adults sometimes get confused in hospitals, because they're dehydrated. They're not drinking enough water. And we do know, once again, that dehydration is really, really, really bad. And when you're dehydrated, you can't think as well. Um, you do sometimes get delirious and you're not really sure what's what. And I mean, you're going to die if you don't drink water for a few days. That's all it takes. Maria, I'm not a scientist, but we're going to die anyway. <laughs> let me... Yes, life is 100% fatal. Let us now pause to imbibe as I ask this next question. So let's cut to the water chase. Let's cut to the chase through this canal. And I will ask you, drinking eight glasses a day, that helps your health. That helps your skin. That will help you become one click away from glamorous. Is that bullshit? That is mostly bullshit, Mike, unfortunately. No, no. I think it's fortunate. I shouldn't feel uh, any water guilt. But I want to thank you, Maria Konnikova, covers science issues for The New Yorker, comes on our show to play this and to dispel water-based myths. Cheers. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. <sighs> Refreshing.
And now the spiel, International Institution Ire. There are several international institutions which have earned my ire. So often we make an individual the villain. We personify villainy in the form of a person. We direct our anger at that guy or that woman or that former national security advisor during the Nixon and Ford administrations. But you know, institutions, it's institutions that really have got me down today. I would just like to list some of the institutions that are on my radar screen and not in a fun Santa Claus has been detected by NORAD kind of way. Institution number one, the office of the Turkish presidency. Okay, I understand that Turkey is a minimal satisfier in the war on ISIS. A satisficer, the dating sites might tell you. And I get that Recep Erdogan is playing his own game. We talked about him, President of Turkey's motivations a couple days ago. But not joining the fight against ISIS with everything you got, or really with anything you got, that's one thing. Bombing the Kurds is another. Turkey launched airstrikes against the PKK, the main fighters who are fighting ISIS. This was from WallStreetJournal.com. Turkey appears more concerned about Kurdish rebels on its soil than Islamic State fighters in Kobani. Its warplanes repeatedly bombed the PKK, or Kurdistan Workers' Party, in the southeast Hakkari province on Monday. I like how they say, Turkey appears more concerned with the Kurds, and the evidence of this appearance is the hellfire raining from the sky. I guess in Turkey, I'll acknowledge the PKK officially on some U.S. government list, says terrorists. Hard to be good with guns in the Middle East and not to be terrorist aligned, however. Fine. But really, in Turkey, bombing the Kurds, it's just become like a knee-jerk response to everything. In case of fire, break glass and bomb the Kurds. When using a Turkish Q-tip, make sure to go gently around the ear, never inside, and bomb the Kurds. You know, a lot of times when a Turkish woman is pregnant, they'll tell the dad, why don't you pre-pack the bag, you know, change your clothes, maybe pre-program a car service into your cell phone and bomb the Kurds. Next institution I'm mad at, by the way, if you're not getting this, I can't do anything about these institutions except to be upset, but I'm mad at the Mexican police officers in the state of Guerrero. Yeah, I'm pretty despondent, actually. So 43 students protested conditions and so forth uh, in September, and they were just disappeared in the Mexican state of Guerrero. These were college students, and this seems to be what they do. They can't find these 43 students. Are they dead? Are they being tortured? A local gang leader said that the police had ordered him to kill 17 of them. Experts are trying to figure out where they are, and then they found a mass grave. So this was going to be the time where they authenticated the bodies, and it was going to be sad. But from this point, at least I was hoping that some reconciliation, some accountability could occur. No. Mexico's attorney general today said, we found this mass grave and there are no DNA matches with the students. In other words, there are 28 bodies or remains in the mass grave. None of them were the disappeared 43. So we don't know where the 43 students are. There's also a mass grave that we have no idea in Mexico who these people are. In fact, that's so bad in Mexico that in many of the stories about this mass grave not being the grave of the students, no one is even bothering to ask, well, who are the bodies? This, uh, you know, sometimes international news can either get me angry or can get me sad. I choose to be angry over this one because if you dwell too much on it, you get sad. But here's one. It's a domestic one, and it's really all about anger. 
I'm very upset with Dallas Presbyterian Hospital. I'm sure you are too. They screwed up the admission of this guy, Duncan, who had Ebola. They got that wrong. One of their nurses gets Ebola because they don't know how to take off their equipment. Turns out another nurse today was announced, got Ebola. What is going on? Emory Hospital gets people with Ebola, treats people with Ebola. Those people walk away. Dallas gets a person with Ebola who shouldn't have even had Ebola. I mean, they should have figured it out beforehand. And they just create more people with Ebola because of it. Does the United States have an Ebola problem? Or does the United States have a Dallas Presbyterian Hospital problem? I'll offer this suggestion. So, so much depends on the removal of the protective gear. And we're trying to figure out what processes were in place. Videotape it. It's 2014. This is serious stuff. When the people come out after having treated an Ebola patient, videotape how they remove their protective gear. Then we can see what went wrong. I think it's worth it to pinpoint the problem rather than to say vaguely, we have to re-examine our procedures. Next institution, this one's pure ire, no sadness, Florida State or the Tallahassee PD, or let's say college football in general. Today it was announced that Jameis Winston, who won the Heisman Trophy, is being investigated for none of the many, many things he did that border on the criminal or the disgusting, for autographs, for signing autographs, because a college football player can't sign autographs. And let me tell you, the FSU authorities are on this, man, interviewing the autograph authenticator. They are talking to Jameis Winston. They're getting statements and triangulating and talking with other reporting agencies. Now, put this in comparison to how they investigated actual real acts of immorality or illegality when it's perpetrated by a member of the football team. The New York Times just had this huge article about how members of the football team went around shooting guns, BB guns and pellet guns, but just shooting it at civilians, breaking windows, no charges. One guy stole a scooter. They convinced the victim, oh, you don't want to press charges. He is a football player. Domestic violence was just poo-pooed and swept under the table. And then Jameis Winston, I am not saying that he was a rapist. I do not know if he was a rapist. There was never an adequate investigation into whether he was a rapist. And that is my point. There was never an adequate investigation into whether he was a rapist. And I know the Tallahassee police was supposed to do the investigation. And I know Florida State isn't the Tallahassee police, but they were working hand in hand to make sure that no one laid a hand on Jameis Winston. If you're not following this case, let me just give you this one fact that's not in dispute. During a sexual liaison between Jameis Winston and this undergraduate who was extremely drunk and claimed she was victimized, she was videotaped without her permission. And that evidence is being used as to the question of sexual violation to exonerate Jameis Winston that he was involved in a sexual violation. What is on this videotape that was taken without this girl's permission is being used to bolster the claim that Jameis Winston didn't rape anyone. But look, if he signed an autograph without someone's permission, we're going to nab him on that one. I made the analogy, you know, college football is like a cross between Singapore and Somalia. They'll cane you for chewing gum, but rape, I mean, really, what can we do about it? All right, so what institutions am I not angry at? Doctors Without Borders, they do a great job. SNL's having a good season, I think. The Islanders are 3-0. So on the one hand, we have deadly disease, raining fire from the sky, mass graves, a blind eye to rape, gunplay, domestic abuse. On the other hand, TV show, a hockey team. I think I'm going to have to get a cold beer. Oh yeah, Sierra Nevada. I also put Sierra Nevada in the category of institutions that I back. So I'm going to crack a frosty one.
and I'm going to bomb the Kurds. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, Andy Bowers, Mike Volo, they all helped me produce Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes. These are all sites that in one way or another are out there. They help us. I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the pledge drive. After today, you have two more days where I'm going to talk about this. Then we're going to let it lie fallow. And during those two days, I hope you talk up the gist. I hope you tell people I think you'd like the gist. But during these next two days, especially, I would like you to sign someone up for the gist. Many people have emailed me or Facebooked me. Yes, I've been trying to do this. And if you have a success story, if you sign someone up who we think would be great, if you sign a whole bunch of people up, tell us. And you could be a lobster of the Anten Twig which we're going to announce on Friday. You know, we know it's almost impossible to have the kind of huge audiences that they have, not just on network news, but even, you know, cable news. It's a lot easier when there's a piece of furniture in everyone's house or in everyone's car. And all you have to do is click it on and kind of passively discover this stuff. And this is why our delivery mechanism is extremely flawed. There's no way to hook someone who doesn't already have someone involved advocating for us. And that's where you come in. You're a necessary linchpin in this entire process. The only way for the gist to stay around, for in fact, the gist to expand and grow, and for you to get serious consideration as a lop star. We really do appreciate it. I'm going to stop these over-pledge drives in two days. But in the meantime, thank you for helping me, and thanks for listening. We win it in a lot of weed, dipping in a pot of blue folk. Getting so good, it's dripping on wood. Get a ride in an engine that could go. Batman robbing it, bang, bang, cocking it. Queen Nikki dominant, prominent. It's me, Jesse and Ari. If they test me, they sorry. Ride is up like a Harley, then pull off in this Ferrari. If he hanging, we banging. Phone ringing, he slanging. It ain't karaoke night, but get the mic, cause I'm singing. Oh.